Radio. Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio. Now, here's your host, Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. by one of my favorite poets, Lynn Vitti. Her newest book is Dancing at Lake Montebello. Hello, Lynn. How are you? I'm well, thank you, um, and really happy to be here. Well, happy belated birthday. Thank you. I, I, yes. Uh, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to celebrate it in July, I think. Okay. All right. Fantastic. <laughs> not quite ready to celebrate it now. <laughs> okay. Well, let me ask this question. You've written books, you've published poems and journals and other types of publications. What does being creative mean to you? Um, I think it means, well, I, if you go to the the basic meaning of the word, it means to make something. And I think that um, for me, I, I love words, and obviously, like most human beings, I have very deep feelings about many things, um, and I also have a quirky sense of humor. So for me, um, there are different ways to create. Um, you can, you know, I like to bake, I like to cook, I like to garden, but there's something about creating, making something with words and then sort of sending it out into the world and hoping that other people will read it and take an interest in it, That's that to me, that's what creating is, making something primarily for me with words. Um, Quite beautiful. That, that call up emotions, observations, mm-hmm. fears, celebrations, um, all of those things. Well, what do you believe is the best advice you've ever been given about how to be more creative? Well, I think I think one of the we've all heard the old saw about um, writing is is ten percent inspiration and ninety percent perspiration, and I think that there's there's a, a lot of truth in that 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 the discipline of writing, even if you don't feel like writing or you don't really think you're inspired. Um, I think just the, the importance of either keeping a journal or a notebook of ideas, because you don't may not. I certainly don't every day wake up and say, "I think I'll write three sonnets today," but I try to write something down, even if it's a little note, a text that I send to myself because I see something. And I think that would make a good poem, but I, I'm in the middle of something else that does not involve writing, and I have to finish that other task because it's it's crucial, it's it's time sensitive. But if I get that idea down, I can go back to it. And I think that notion that not every day has to result in a polished poem, not every mm-hmm. week really, but just sort of saving up these scraps of insight or or little flashes of of curiosity, um, and then at some point saying, well, I've been, you know, I've been saving these up for about a week. I should sit down and go through some of these and see if I can write something. And I think, um, to me, that's part of it, the discipline of writing. But I think the other advice that, that I 
got a long time ago from a a fellow writer um, who had had quite a lot of success. She didn't start writing mystery novels until she was in her late 40s. And we were in a writing group together, and she said to all of us, because we were all just starting to submit our work, and we were getting rejections, and she said, you have to believe in your own work. You have to believe in it. And and I think there are times when I write something and, and I work on it, work on it, and then I think, you know, I just don't think this is that good. I, I'm just going to push it to the side and maybe forever and move on to okay. something else because because I want to believe in it. Because when I send it out and I think, and I've got one I've sent out a bunch of times and it has gotten rejected four or five times, and and it won a prize in a contest, and I still can't get it published as a single poem. I haven't yet. And I think it's just, it's not the poem. I just got to keep sending it out because I know it's a good poem, and mm-hmm. I think I think it's worth pu- publishing. It's just I have to hit the editor at the right point, but if I don't send it out, it's not going to get published. So I think wow. believing in your own work is important. You should take pride in it, and you should send it out. Well, Without further ado, please share some of your work. I will. And I'm going to start with one poem from Dancing at Lake Montebello. And then I'm going to read some of my newer work, meaning this book came out in November of 2020. So it's not, it's the, the ink is not quite dry on it. But I have a lot of poems that I have written since then I thought I would share. And they fall into several different categories, which I'll talk about as I reach them. This is a poem. Um, in the first section of Dancing at Lake Montebello, which is that whole section of the book is really retrospective, thinking back to my early days, um, particularly with my father um, and then sometimes with my mother. But this particular poem, I spent a lot of time with my father at his place of work, which was a bar um, in, a, in a section of Baltimore called Highland Town. Um, or as, the, as we in Baltimore pronounce it, Hollandtown. Um, and this is a poem just uh, about um, what it was like to go down there early in the morning um, before business started. He would, you know, he would take me down there, and then my mother would come fetch me before the, the day started because she didn't want me hanging around the bar, <laughs> a working man's bar. Early morning in Highlandtown. In my mind's eye, I see it. The stub of a MacAdam road, dead-ending into blue diamond coal. Its trucks lined up each morning for the long hauls. To the left, the junkyard, heaps of metal and rubber, hard by an Italianate house, rust brown, coated with years of dust and cinder ash, face the junkyard cranes. A porch swing, always vacant, even on summer evenings, only the metal crane saw. The folks who lived in the house, white-haired, plainly dressed, bespectacled, came and went together, but mostly stayed home. My father's tavern sat amongst these places, the last in a row of houses. In its former life, the bar housed a bakery, we heard. The baker's family lived upstairs in the cramped rooms, their kitchen, the bakery itself. I used to pretend I could smell bread baking, the sweet fragrance of airy white loaves turning golden in the long-gone ovens. I went with my father there before dawn, 
the half-light bathing the block in a sepia glow. I sat at a small table in the back bar reading comics, or on the ragged sidewalk I stood peering down as my father slid each beer keg into a hand truck, rolled it up a plywood ramp and into the tavern. Light crept in through the glass bricks in the storefront. I leaned around the corner of the dark wood bar, watched him roll the keg from hand cart to its station, waited for the hiss when he tapped the silver barrel. I inhaled the faint, yeasty smell. Sounds of traffic began to flow in from the bar's back door, still propped open. I was sent to pick the paper up from the doorstep, laid it on my father's work table near the curved jukebox. It wouldn't be switched on till lunchtime. Hank Williams and Jerry Lee's wails would issue from it. But by then, I would be back home. Quiet streets, small green lawns, lolling on an old quilt spread in shade. Thank you. I need to ask this, this question. Oh, <laughs> well, okay. Let me ask this question, please. <laughs> okay. That was sublime. Thank you. I, Thank you. I am just so struck by your talent. Thank you. I should say what? before. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Michael. No, please, please. I'm sorry. I, well, I was going to say I had planned. I had planned to to say this at the beginning before I started reading, but I would like to dedicate this all the reading that I do tonight to somebody who was very, very dear to me, and she passed okay. away last Saturday. Her name was Sister Carol Estelle Wheeler. She was a sister of mercy, and she was my. English teacher in 10th grade and and 12th grade, and she was just a lifelong mentor and advisor, and she was the one who really taught me how to read poetry and appreciate it and encouraged my own writing of poetry from a young age. Very nice. Sister Carol. Very nice. Very nice. Please continue, and I'll never interrupt again. Please continue. No, that's okay. That's fine. Um, This is an Ars Poetica. And that's the title of this poem. I wrote this um, as part of an exercise in a workshop that I did at the William Joyner Institute for the Study of War and Violence, which is at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. And it, the workshop um, has run um, many years, and there's a hiatus right now, of course, because of COVID and other issues. But I took a workshop with the amazing Martin Espada, um, who was one of my favorite poets, and he gave us a prompt and sent us off for an hour, and came, everyone came back, and this is what I came up with, and now I've worked on it a little bit more. Ars Poetica. Beneath each little story I was told from a tender age by my mother, aunts, grandmother, stories with well-defined plots, narratives populated by the storytellers themselves, assisted by a cast of characters from outside our family. Beneath each tale, I sensed there was another, a truer story, an alternate, alternate text, a painful experience smoothed over, 
package not only for my child's ears, but for the grown-ups as well. The war turned your uncle into an alcoholic. Uncle Sam made him a bombardier. It broke him. Your father was so changed after his accident. When we had to send you to live with Aunt Kay, I visited you every day. You were always an oversensitive child. Digging up the understory's bones to get at the marrow, sucking out the deepest part of my history without manipulating it, telling it, that's my job. And if you tell me it never happened that way, the way you wrote it, I say, write your own poem. That, that's the end of that one. This is a mixed bag here. I, I went through my journal and kind of went to town um, a couple weeks ago in between other chores. This poem is, is actually um, based on a painting by a painter who spent half of his time in, um, on the Cape and half of his time in Baltimore, which is where he lived you know, in the winter season and fall. And he taught as well in Baltimore. He taught art. And his name was Herman Merrill. And the title of this poem is based on the title of a painting that he's done. And part of the painting is a version of the painting by another artist named Jeff Blum, um, is on the front of my book, Dancing at Lake Montebello, and it, lots of oranges and yellows, and the shot tower, which is a Baltimore monument in the background. After, and the title is, After Herman Merrill's, I Return to the Hot, Humid City. Heavy air stalls over the harbor. I'm back from the seashore too soon. On East Fayette, bodies on front stoops, hardly move, unable to do more than lift glasses of water to their lips. Someone's brought out a portable radio, a maroon plastic box, set it on the sidewalk. There are debates between neighbors, between adults and teenagers, as to which station, R&B or the ball game, is more suitable. I walk to the corner store for a pack of smokes. The humidity presses down on me. It will be like this tonight and tomorrow and the next day. It ain't the heat, man, I hear the fellow in front of me in line muse. It's the dang humidity. I've miscalculated, returned in the dog days when I should be sitting on a wraparound porch looking out on the Atlantic, sweet ocean breeze on my arms, good sleeping weather. From my window, buildings tinted orange by the sun's last heat blasts, the shot tower, a sentry over the baking town. And that's the end of that one. Okay, this next one, I told you this was a mixed bag. This is called Engineers, and this is based on um, a semester that I spent teaching um, writing at a very small engineering college um, in Needham, Massachusetts called Olin. It's only been around for about 20 years. I was listening to these engineers-to-be talk about their assignments in their other classes while I was teaching composition to them. Engineers. The first years had barely unpacked. 
moved into their dorm spaces before their first task popped up on email. Go out into a suburban asphalt road flanked by, go out into a field, catch a jumping insect, the instructor directed. Preferably put your find in a large glass jar. Turn the jar sideways, observe, study the way the insect's legs hinge, how the joints operate, so efficiently, without oil, without a motor. Notice how gracefully it deploys its limbs as it tries to jump its way out of the glass trap. And then, because their professor was a Buddhist, she added, do your observations quickly. Use your phone to make a video or sketch your grasshopper, cricket, leafhopper quickly. Pay attention to nature's perfect engineering. Then, unscrew the jar lid, let your subject go. Watch it jump across the brown September grasses. Always remember this. Okay, that's the end of that one. I should say that, of course, they were studying the insects so they could make machines that, that mimic the insect. So that was like an interesting first assignment. Um, I have two poems about moons, one short and one's long. I'll start with the short one. Um, I believe that I wrote this before COVID hit, um, Cold Moon. Winter self longs for summer. High winds scuttle leaves that weeks ago seemed frozen to the ground. A full cold moon lights up the mess of a front yard, straw and earth flung there by a wayward sidewalk plow. Summer self never longs for winter, never even thinks of it. Instead, fixes itself in the moments of each long day, taking in the soil's heat underfoot well after the sun drops. Okay, this next one, that's that one. This is a long one. After this, everyone will probably need a snack. Lenten <laughs> moonrise. Lenten moonrise. Like the infant who has confused night and day, or the baby napping for hours in a sunny bassinet, batting at crib toys all night, I've swapped night for day. Prowl around the house, coughing so hard I strain muscles in my neck. My partner, self-exiled to the single futon two flights of stairs away in the house's lower level, has stuffed his ears with plugs, so sturdy they can protect against clanging guitars amplified a hundredfold through speakers to insulate him against my racking cough. It's flu, not the novel, novel coronavirus, perhaps not real flu, just a flu-like illness, an imposter, bringing chills, fever, malaise, sleep and rest under an automatic blanket is the only cure and tea water, juice, broth, any of this tastes finest in the wee hours. Outside an unfamiliar landscape, devoid of house lights, I look out the kitchen windows to the home whose backyard abuts ours. The moon is just past full, barely waning. 
I look for animals in the yard, the ones who do their work at night, deer who gnaw the ewes, strip them of needles, or browse the fir trunks with their antlers. The hawk that we see sometimes, mornings, when the garden is profuse with green and purple blooms, not like now, when all is brown, or bleached out stalks of white oak leaves that arrange themselves against the side of the low deck, or between large stepping stones to the grass. Pale brown blades like an old carpet we should roll up for the trash. On this Valentine's Day of flu, I have missed the moonrise. Well after midnight, I watch it illuminate the yard. I tiptoe so as not to awaken the cat who roams the basement all night looking out the window by the washing machine or prowls for intruders, centipedes, stink bugs, the occasional, occasional mouths. I click on the electric kettle, brew another cup of tea and dose it with honey, drop in a lemon wedge, carry the mug back to bed. I read till sleep comes. Tomorrow, I'll collect the tissues I've flung to the floor all night in the cough drop wrappers. The moon shines silver through the windows. I embrace the quiet now at 3 a.m., make my peace with it, soothed by the moon's beams falling across the quilt. Tomorrow the moon will set while I dream stories I'll half remember and the moon will hide wherever it hides. By night it will emerge anew, a spare, ascetic, Lenten moon. You know, I forgot to ask the question. I was so thunderstruck by your work. (laughs) (laughs) What's the question? It's the question. um, Do you come from a literary background? And part two of that is, what did you learn about what did you learn growing up about writing? Um, those are those are really interesting questions that um, nobody has asked me that particular way before. Um, I grew up with a mother who was a teacher, which which is probably mm. key because she read to me. She was a an elementary school teacher when I was growing up, and she actually was teaching first grade when I was in kindergarten. And um, she talked the principal into letting me come spend my afternoons at her school. It was like a daycare issue. She said, you know, I got out at noon. What was who, what was going to happen to me between noon and when she finished it at 3, 3.30? So Miss Culbertson, the sainted principal of mom's school, said she can come, and, and I sat in the classroom. So, of course, all the first graders were learning to read. So I was a kindergartner. I didn't realize that, you know, I wasn't supposed to learn to read yet so I learned to read too and she brought the books home and the the, the the primers and and as soon as I mean she always read to me and she always took me to the library but as soon as I could read at all I always had my nose in a book and um, I think you know I I love to listen to my mother read she would read me poetry she would read me fairy tales she would um she she was a great reader herself, and I think my father read, but he read like the newspaper and the sports page, mm-hmm. and you know the American Legion magazine and the Mary Knoll mm-hmm. Mission magazine. But my mother loved stories, and she loved movies too. And so I think that I I grew up in a book rich environment since the time I was little, and of course I love school. So you know I think that that just that just 
kept going and going. And by the time I got to high school, I, I went to this wonderful school, girls' high school, Catholic girls' school, where we had these just the most wonderful young teachers. They were all like like Sister Carol, who passed away last weekend. Was oh, she was 24 when we were 14 and in her class. I mean, they were so energetic and so dedicated. And um, so I, I, I guess that would be a literary background. And then, you know, yes. I wanted to major in English, so I just kept doing it. Um, so I think that would be the answer. But a lot of it, I think, was my mother. She she was somebody who had grown up from very um, very humble background and was a child of divorce. And nobody in her family read maybe magazines, but she loved school, and, and she said school was her salvation, and she just blossomed. So I think that was what m- both my sister and I benefited from, was having a mother who read to us and, and encouraged us to read and gave us books and took us to the library every other week. So I can't Very remember nice. the second question. You... The second question, well, the second the question second is, what did, you, what did you learn about writing growing up? Oh, writing. Yeah. Well, I think I I never minded having to write anything in school. Um, and any time there was an opportunity for something creative, like write a play or write a skit, you know, I had my hand up. And there was a librarian, Miss um, Coughlin, at the branch library that we went to in Baltimore City, who had a big binder, and she would she said to me. These are stories that children who come here have written. I would like you to write a story. And I said, oh, sure, I'll write a story. Of course, I started it, and then I kind of, I was young. I was about seven. And I kind of lost my mojo halfway through. And every time I went to the library, she'd say, when am I going to see the rest of your story? I gave her part of it. And she just shamed me into doing it. And my mother would say, (laughs) my mother's big thing was, "Start, finish what you started. Like you can't quit Girl Scouts in the middle of the year. You got to finish the year out. You got like don't don't stop in the middle. You got you got to finish it. So I finished the story, and I was just so proud when I saw that the librarian had typed it up and put it in her book that I started writing more. <laughs> so and I was a letter writer. I was a letter writer too, and I would write little plays and make the younger kids in the neighborhood be in my plays. You know, and so on. <laughs> It's like, okay, well, we're going to do a play, and this is about, like, opening day or something at the ballpark, you know. You'd be Gus well, Triandos. Okay. okay. Let's take a brief break, and we'll okay. be right back. All right. Wonderful 
Lynn Vitti. Please call in. This, the call-in number is 646-787-1631 if you have a question for Lynn. I have another question for Lynn. Are you ready? I am. I am ready. <laughs> okay. Some poets claim that a poem is like a living creature. Once it's out there, there's not much you can do to correct or improve it, while others edit meticulously, not leaving much from the original draft form. What is your take on it? Um, well, I've done both, and I think um, it, it is, especially if you're, if you're a detail-oriented person, it's hard even after it's been published. I, I just was reading one. I was self-editing as I went along. I thought, why did I say it that way? And I just edited it when I read it, a little tiny thing. But I think, mm-hmm. I think at some point you have to let it go. I mean, it's, if it's in a book, it's done. I mean, I suppose you could right. go back and, and, and rewrite it. But I think, um, I think it is, it, it, it's sort of an artifact by the time it, it really gets set up in print. Um, I, I, yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think especially for those of us who revise and revise and revise, you know, some of these poems go through 10 or 11 revisions, and even when you're reading yes. the proofs for a book, you say, you say, okay, you don't want to drive the publisher crazy, but you think that line just does not work, and I want to change it to this. So that's kind of your last chance. But mm-hmm. at that point, I mean, I don't just like like write them out, type them up, and they're done. You know, I, I do a lot of revision, um, and it continues and continues until I, not only till I submit the manuscript altogether, but as I'm doing those um, proof proofreading or proofreading it, really is also kind of copy editing it but also there's that is there is there a better word or have i used the same word or the same turn of phrase twice in this collection i need to rethink that so yes i would say that's the last chance and after that i think it it has to be done i mean you could drive yourself i could drive myself crazy um, well with all of that Knowing what goes into writing a poem and whether the process is a meticulous one or one where it's a one and done, so to speak, does uh-huh. writing energize or exhaust you? Oh, it energizes me, no doubt. Tell me more. Tell yeah. me more. Well, I think um, I just had to put together a, a group of 15 new poems or rough poems for a workshop that I'm doing with um, a fairly well-known, a very well-known poet who herself has published many, many books. And you're not supposed to send in something that you've already published. You're not supposed to send in something that you've polished to death. It has to be something that's still in, in, in formation. And it was really hard for me to do that because I, cause I would say, I know I can do better than this, but yet mm. the advice was, it should still be kind of in a draft form, and if it doesn't have a title, that's okay. Because one of the days in the workshop, we have to submit something with no title or a not very good title. So I think, you know, I think it's, I don't know, I kind of, now I've kind of lost track of the question. That's okay. <laughs> Sorry. Whether it energizes uh, you or not. Well, it, it does energize me, and I think the part for, what I find exhausting is when everything is said and done, when you're looking at a whole mm-hmm. manuscript, and you get the final set of proofs, and you have to really be, and this is the point at which, you know, in the old days, they just turned over to a copy editor, 
but you really have to be your own copy editor. And okay. that is really difficult because you're so close to the work, whereas somebody who would come in and look, who's an ace at, you know, reading copy, um, it, it would be easier for them than it is for you because you're you're close to it and you're, you're reading it and and you're probably inserting words where they're not there but they should be so i it's very hard to kind of for me to switch and i did this as a teacher i was always assiduously copy editing my students work way more than i should have um right and it's hard to do it to your, for your own work and that is exhausting i mean you just okay. think i never want to look at this poem again or the other 91 poems in this collection. <laughs> so I find that tedious where I don't love that tedious work, but but the actual draft and revise and revise and revise and revise, I find it energizing. All right. Please share some more of your work. Okay, I've got, again, I said this was going to be a mixed bag, and I have a couple more in this group um, that are not related to each other. And then I have some, if we have time, a couple of the pandemic mm-hmm. poems that I mentioned. Oh, All right. Great. This one, um, a, a couple years ago, a good friend of mine, and a teacher and poet, mm-hmm. and I taught a course in Ireland, and we took 10, 12 students to Ireland with us. We spent all our time two weeks in the west of Ireland, and they were learning about poetry and history, and they were writing, um, and we were all doing a lot of writing. And one of the towns, the first town that we stayed in, is called Letterfrack, Letterfrack, County Galway, and it is um, kind of an artist center, and poets and writers uh, are attracted to the town. It's right um, near the coast, and it's just a very special, very small place, not far. It's in the it's in the Connemara Mountains. And it's near Kylemore Abbey. So those are something. But there's also something else about this town. And it was the site of a of a school run by an order of uh, Roman Catholic brothers. And it was a school for sort of wayward boys. They were kids who, you know, they maybe they had gotten in trouble in school. Maybe they stole a bike. Maybe they were just um, very recalcitrant kids who didn't mind their parents. Somehow they ended up at this school, and there were many, many abuses at the school, and it was just Sorry. an outrage. They were treated so badly, and it was, it was, phys- it was like physical discipline that exceeded any discipline that you would, you know, use on a child. And then there was sexual abuse, and there, it's all over the town are these poems, these poetry walks, where there are poets, very well po- known poets, have have written poems about this. Okay, so this poem is called Leaving Letterfrack, County Galway. Already I miss the ghosts of those lost boys, maltreated by the so-called Christian brothers. I miss the graveyard where the small headstones recite each boy's name and age at death. Ten, twelve, fourteen. The little crosses line up in perfect straight rows. It's no wonder all of Ireland has lost its faith. Now the preschoolers' laughter spills from their playground, a stone's throw from the old industrial school. My heart is weighed down by the thoughts of the boys whose misdemeanors or unruliness at home landed them in that hellish place. Starved, beaten, 
violated, neglected in the classroom, and punished, tortured in their dormitories, damaged, unprepared for work or for life. On a luxury bus, I try to leave the bleak letter frack behind till all that's left of the place for me is the poetry, whereby poets pay tribute to the boys of letter frack, mark their suffering, keep their memory ever-present, in verse posted on pub doors or on the path by the youth hostel, up the lane to the cemetery, all testaments to those dark acts and that suffering buried in the letter frack earth. That's the end of that one. This next one, well, I think it speaks for itself. The, this is a this is about an Episcopal priest, which is which is to say, Episcopal priests can get married and have children, as opposed to Roman Catholic priests who are celibate. The priest at Abbey and Francisco's wedding. The groom was Spanish. The bride was not. You presided at the wedding, suitably formal, adhering to the Book of Common Prayer. Then came the reception, a ballroom full of round tables draped with ivory cloths, champagne glasses that would be filled, refilled. By the end of the evening, the guests from Spain, friends and family of the groom, danced atop the tables. How noisy they were, how their feet pounded the tabletops. They cried out and sang, but this was nothing compared to watching you do the twist. You'd shed your Roman collar. Your white shirt was open at the throat. You were like the high school kid we never knew you as, the party lover with a contemplative side. When you went down on the mountain trail in Nepal, having defied doctor's orders and convention, as you always did, when your heart, full and ever fuller, surged, and stopped when your companions hauled your body to the village crematory when they left your ashes and bones on the Annapurna trail when your flame went out you were always on to the next journey the Camino de Santiago the Ruta de Pellegrino you were fearless some thought foolish but I remember the day we talked of my father's death when you said It's where we're all headed, and a chill ran through me. Pilgrim, seeker, tell me now, what am I to do with your five paintings stuffed in a cardboard packing box in my attic, waiting for the meetup you promised before everything tumbled to an end? That's that one. Here's something a little more cheerful. This is a sonnet, and I think it speaks for itself. It's called Providence Morning for Woody. Scraping butter on my English muffin today, I think of the time you toasted them for breakfast, carried the honey-drizzled discs upstairs to the bed where we slept together one night. We kept our clothes on. There was no sex. We positioned ourselves close like spoons in a drawer. Butter and honey slipped into the muffin's cavities and into my mouth. I savored each bite. I fended off the urge to start the day. At last I rose and soon was waving goodbye, leaving you to your beekeeping and your garden. 
I drove off in the August sun, top down on my VW. No seatbelts, no airbags, radio busted. I sang Love Has No Pride up the interstate towards home. How are we doing for time, Michael? We're okay. Okay. This is a this is a poem I wrote um, or that I was inspired by, and I took some notes, and then I later wrote it. I think it's also a sonnet, but I'm, I'm not going to count it now. Um, on the train um, from Boston to New York, which was the last time I was in New York, which was in 2019. It's called Failed Urban Renewal, New London from a Train Window. Burnt-out window holes stare from a blackened brick structure. Next to it, in, proclaims the sign on the ground floor. The boarded-up windows are blinded by plywood. In the hazy afternoon sun, school buses line up in a parking lot. Then, between the pilings of two companion bridges, the gray water comes into view. Many colored graffiti defaces or adorns a concrete abutment. And moving away from the city, you can see the back lots of strip malls and cinder block buildings. Ice is freezing on the ponds. Not a human in sight, only an untended landscape. In the bare trees, deserted birds' nests, balls of sticks balanced in dormant branches. That's that one. How about a couple pandemic poems? Here's right. one that here's one that's not too dark. I'm gonna pull this out here. It's called Small Desires. This is about me and my posse or my high school friends that get together from time to time. Not this past year. Small desires. <laughs> Small desires. Five middle-aged women tucked into a booth at an Upper West Side diner. We ordered omelets, coffee, refills on coffee. Our bodies were close. We devoured popovers from a common plate, tasted each other's food in a communion of sisterhood, threw twenties on the table, over-tipped because we'd all waited tables in our youth. From opposite coasts, we zoomed about what we missed, being touched, kissing a grandchild, AA meetings in a church basement, sipping black coffee, slipping out for smokes or fresh air at the break. We wonder if we'll dine again at a bistro table, touch each other gently on wrist or forearm to make a point, if we'll ever again link arms as we walk down Broadway, freed from our computer screens, our layers of confinement. Will we sit maskless again in a theater, in orchestras so near the stage we can see the actors spit? I think we might be able to do that. I don't know. <laughs> okay, here's, a, here's another food, here's a food poem. This is um, a poem I wrote the very beginning of the COVID lockdown. The last time we had dinner, my husband and I had dinner with anybody else for months indoors. In praise of pasta alla norma. Infused with minced anchovies and eggplant, married to tomatoes and good olive oil, the rust-colored sauce reminds us of Sicily, our walks up the mountains and hills, 
on ancient drove roads in the heat through villages where only the old have stayed, where locals offered to sell us empty houses for a pittance if we'd only pay the back taxes and fix the place up. Twice our hostess says, It's a vegetarian meal tonight. No need to apologize. The short tubes of pasta enrobed in sarsa, ricotta salting the dish beyond what we normally permit, smells earth and sun. Fresh baked crusty bread, a salad, and pasta alla norma. Tonight, we soften the lines of our quarantine. We're transported back to Catania when we emerge from the airport terminal into the warm night, looking to fill our bellies, our souls, with food for a king composed like an aria from stuff of the ancient Sicilian earth. Did your writing change during the pandemic? Uh, yeah, it kind of got longer. I think I, I kind of tend to go on too long in some of the okay. poems. I've got a, okay. I've got a, uh, um, I, I don't know. I don't know. Hmm. I mean, I think I, tr- I was trying to write about stuff that was right in front of me, and some of it I don't think is going to last, you know, it might have a shelf life, but some of okay. it is, I think, bigger than that. So it'll, it'll be interesting okay. to see. This one is called Winter well, Sonnet. Oh, do we have time? Okay. Yes, we do. No. Please. Okay. Winter Sonnet 2020. We rise earlier than usual, forgo coffee in bed, read what news we can bear to absorb. We make sandwiches, pack them in plastic bags. You don protective gear, masks, disposable gloves. By now you've stopped by the church to pick up grocery bags of more sandwiches in the narthex where we used to gather in fellowship on Sunday. That space will be empty and dark this morning. I imagine you lifting the bags of sandwiches, depositing them in the trunk of your car. Soon you'll make your way on the turnpike to deliver this meal to those who live on the streets, who bravely sleep on the library grates who meet the virus on the road. Who meet the virus on the road. Wow. Yeah. What, Lynn, what do you hope readers get, in quotes, from encountering your work? Well, I hope that there's something that, 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 that they can relate to. Even right. if, even the poem is like even if the poem like like even if I showed the poem the poem to Providence Morning to like one of the nuns that I had you know in high school that they would they 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 maybe not have had a similar experience but they could understand what was going on mm-hmm. or something or they would say I like the way you said such and such like appreciated the phrase sometimes and that's interesting because sometimes when you post your poem I post drafts of poem or already published poems on my blog and sometimes people will write and they'll go, I love the phrase blah 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 and I think, Oh good right. you know, mm-hmm. I, they paid attention and they and they delighted in some part of it. Or sometimes it'll be a very sad poem and they'll say, This made me one woman wrote, I, I have this poem called In Your Absence I'm Wearing Your Hat which is about when my husband and I were away from each other for a few days, and this woman was widowed, and she said, I loved your poem, and it made me think of John, 
her late husband, mm. right? Wow. And that wow. just made me so happy but sad at the same time. But yes. it was a it was it, it touched her in a way and that's what I would hope. Well, speaking of emotion, do you think that someone can be called a poet if they don't feel strong emotion? Yeah, sure. I think there there are a lot of poets that are extremely cerebral and um and they're still poets. I mean, you know, a lot of the a lot of the Roman classical poets mm-hmm. come to mind, you know. Catullus. All right. Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think I think it's a, a different it's a different mindset. It's not it's not it's not that I don't appreciate poetry like that, but I don't write that. I, I just it's not mm-hmm. it's not in my nature. Um, I could I could probably give it a try, but right. um, I think it would be uh, arduous. That would be we'll um, be back exhausting. with a few more poems from Lynn Vitti. Okay. back. Again, I am Michael Anthony Ingram. I am here with Lynn Vitti. Her newest book is Dancing at Lake Montebello. Please share a few more poems before we go. Okay, I will um, I will read a few poems and maybe I'll end with the title poem of Dancing at Lake Montebello because it's a real shorty but I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. Um, this is a poem about my father um, and the um, in the Jewish tradition, there's something called the Yarzite, which is a year after the person dies, um, and there's a ceremony. And then every year after that, on that it means anniversary of the death. I guess it really means year time, literally. But this um, I wrote when it was around the it was the anniversary of my father's death, and he died many years ago, um, 28 years ago actually. So. I'll just read it, the Arzite from my father. In the hospice, you lay in a narrow bed, metal sides locked. Though there was no need, you were motionless, full of morphine, your skin waxy yellow, your body worn out from years of smoking, the booze and the pills. I sit, touch your hand, watch your steady breathing, aided by the oxygen tube in your nostrils. Your heart beats on, not knowing it's almost time to stop. I brush my palm across your head, the thin white hair soft under my touch. Your open eyes see nothing. When I first enter the room, I notice the man lying on the other side of the curtain, dividing your death hours from his. He pretends to watch TV, the volume a low drone. The lights dim, 
the nurse switches off lethal weapon two. Your mouth draws into a small, rigid O. Your breathing becomes ragged. I have never been so weary. I lean my head against yours, bending over the cold bed rail and softly singing, cruising down the river on a Sunday afternoon. This is another one about my father. It's called When He Walked Off the Ship. She hardly recognized him, this gaunt soldier, muscles atrophied, broken front teeth, a small gash in the forehead. He wore his navy whites, his hat cocked, his hair in tufts sticking out from under the Dixie cup. He was 34, looked 60. She resisted the urge to weep, waited at the dock, breathing deeply to keep herself calm, repeated his name to herself like a response she might have made in church, a mumbled amen, or pray for us who have recourse to thee. Her eyes followed his as he walked down the gangplank. Once he was ashore, she threw her arms around him, trying to pick up where they had left off before he enlisted and was on his way to Pensacola, San Pedro, Calcutta, Manchuria, dots on the world map in her sixth-grade classroom, 900 days of letters, whole swaths of words blacked out by military censors, but always signed the same way, your Jim. I'm going to read one that is kind of a fun poem and then a shorty. This one is called, In Our Previous Lives We Owned a Bakery. You made panettone in round paper collars, elderflower celebration cakes, bakewell tarts. Sometimes when a shipment of sour Seville oranges arrived by rail from faraway California, you put up jars of bitter marmalade for New Year's with grapefruit, blood oranges, lemon in the mix. Each jar displayed a label announcing, Courage! We worked 16-hour days, left the children with our mothers or mothers-in-law. We gave cinnamon rolls and strong coffee to the cops, free of charge, to stay in their good graces, so they'd keep an eye on the shop midnight till dawn. Sometimes we handed over fresh anadama loaves or cupcakes iced in pink buttercream. The bank wouldn't lend to women in those days. We borrowed from your uncles, paid interest as though we were common borrowers off the street. Mornings, the smell of orange rinds and sugar never ceased to intoxicate us. I watched you lift the cheesecloth like a bedsheet, tie its corners to fashion a pectin bag. I worked the overnight poolish, adding flour, water, filling great crockery bowls with dough, went to work on the cookies while the bread dough began its first rise. By 9 a.m., with five hours' work behind us, we were ready to flip the front door sign from closed to welcome, we're open. All this I do not actually know, but conjure up from your gift yesterday. Pandemic marmalade labeled Courage 2021. When I open the squat mason jar, these dreams of another life appear, seem more real than imagined. Another life with other struggles, other triumphs, perhaps no better 
no worse than this life we know. And I guess the last one, right? We're out of time, right? We're, we've got about five minutes. Oh, good. I can shoehorn a couple other ones in. This is great. Yes. It's great to have all this time. This is called Walking at Hale Reservation. It's another pandemic poem, early in the pandemic. The road rises before us, an asphalt path through woods, trailheads behind stone walls, traces of colonial farmhouses and work roads where ox carts drag granite from Boston and to Boston and beyond. Did the ghosts of those who worked this land suffer smallpox, think of themselves as sinners in the hands of an angry God, believing they were not among the elect? Or were they stoic, philosophical? Families with their dogs, pairs of adults, runners walk ahead or pass us going the opposite way. In strong sunlight, we shed our gloves, tie our puffy jackets around our waists, Look for messages of spring, trees budding, a spot of new green emerging from leaf beds. These signs are scant. The season holds back, but we crave any hint to reassure us something better is on the way. After that first week of shutting ourselves up in the house, we already miss what we used to complain about, jobs grudgingly performed or obligations we had to meet. We turn the last corner, arrive at the parking lot. We climb into the car, sanitize our hands, a secular ritual as close to sacred as we have. Okay. I have a big stack here. I think I've come come to the end of my stack. (laughs) All right. All All right. right. All right. Okay. I've got, um, I'll read two short ones from Dancing at Lake Montebello. Um, I can find two short ones. Oh, Murphy in August. This this is a, another um, broken sonnet, and I can put my hands on it. Oh, Murphy's in this section. I'm sorry. I thought I had it all set up. Um, just get, bear with me one second, because I... Oh, yes. Not a problem. Okay, Murphy in August, where is it? I think I would know my... Oh, here it is. Okay. So this is for Richard Murphy, who was the uh, college housemate of my younger sister. And he was um, a great guitar player who became a computer um, scientist guy. A tech guy. But he majored in, like, German or philosophy or something. So what do you do? You know, you become a coder or whatever. Murphy in <laughs> August. I wrote this for, for Murphy when he retired a couple years ago. Murphy in August. Those without air conditioning in the dog days found cold shelter in the neighborhood movie houses. On such a night, we collected you from the bus station, fresh from your years in Freiburg, long-haired, bearded, last off the bus. You slept a backpack and your guitar came for one last party before we had to grow up. By the time you came down to Baltimore, we were cutting our hair, dressing for success. You were the last to dip your toe into adulthood. 
trade your busker's license for a programmer's desk. That humid night, the 60s were over, the 70s half gone. The moving sidewalk didn't care who was left behind. You hopped on to a job, marriage, two kids, and a 401k. And that's all true. He did. (laughs) Wow. Uh, Okay. Dancing at Lake Montebello. This is for my friend Chris, who thought up the idea of doing what we did in this, as it's described in this poem, and whose father was a real jazz buff, and he knew um, a lot about um, late-night Chinese restaurants in Baltimore because it's where all the jazz musicians would go after the after the uh, after the famous ballroom concert was over. Or, or actually, it wasn't a concert; it was a it was a date, and um, it was one of the few places where um, uh, that wasn't totally segregated. And I think it had to do with the fact that it was Chinese and after hours and and so mm-hmm. on. So it was like, and and this my friend's father shared some of this information with us. Dancing at Lake Montebello, which is which, Lake Montebello is a big reservoir in Baltimore City. Okay. Dancing at Lake Mont. Okay. Dancing at Lake Montebello. The road at night was ours. We sang Happy Birthday to you, who could jolt us to dance around the edges of the reservoir in the headlights of our parked car at midnight. Friday nights, we glued ourselves to the sofa in your family's den. You explained who Oscar Levant was, why we should be amused by his patter. We heard Monk play jazz in a black box theater. You steered us to the best Chinese food in town. You schooled us. This is how we first saw the world splayed open before us, for us. Flipping through to see if there's another shorty here. All right. A good closing poem. Here's a sad one, but I love it. Um, it's called Shades at the Reunion, and I may have read this before. Shades at the Reunion, as in Shades Ghosts. Shades at the Reunion. When we gather like this around the table every five or ten years, drinks in hand, raising toasts, in the back of our minds always are the ghosts, the cousin who died at 40 when the cancer flared, the school friend, gone at barely 50, She loved her smokes. Toxins and her genes did her in. The rest of us, we have survived, though we're not sure why or how. My friend, the hard-edged newsman, laughed when he told me his on-air transition phrase, elsewhere in the news, as if we could move from tsunami to oil spill to death of an ex-president with any kind of grace. When he lay dying in his hospital bed in Croton-on-Hudson, this old journalist stared at TV images of Baltimore burning. It's all like it was before, he murmured. Knowing all this, we sit in the cool air, September sun on our faces, hearing the songbirds carry on like Yeats' miracles in Byzantium. 
Wow. I'm sorry. No, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say that 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 newsman was a very very dear friend of mine, um, who was a my old style newsman. He was my age, but he was like, you know, he was a scotch drinker, and he was a smoker, and he ate what he wanted, and you know, it, and it and it wasn't good. <laughs> and I miss him ter I miss him terribly. His birthday is in May, and my birthday is in May, and I think of him every year on May second, and he's probably been right. for about seven years. Yeah, Mike. Wow. That's for Mike. What did you learn when writing the book? Um, one of the things I learned was that I I have spent I had spent so much time, and I think this was the influence of one of my poetry teachers in the past nine years, who um, a Baltimore-born, but he was poet laureate of Boston. By the time I really got to know him, um, he really felt that it was important um, to write about family, to write about people. And and so I think I did a lot of that. And and putting this book together, I realized that it, it was one of the people who wrote a blurb for the book, um, who's not a poet, said, and I thought to myself, oh, I never saw that. She said, this whole book of poems is like a memoir. It's a memoir in poetry. And I think that's what I learned was that in putting this book together, I have I tried to kind of section it in, into three discrete sections that each had a theme, but they're linked in that it was it was sort of um, girlhood, uh, young womanhood, older, and it was it, there was even though not every poem is about me, there's a lot of who I knew and who I think of and what they meant to me and I, it, and so i think that was one of the things that was really fun about about the book um but i i really am trying to move into something that it's that's more um i don't want to say objective but sort of more about the present and not necessarily mm-hmm. about me and maybe maybe my view and i have a lot of political poems i didn't read them tonight cuz i you know, it's like they're really like I'm really a- I'm really angry poems. Right. It was probably well, when I, it was probably you'll during the election season. You know, it's sort of like <laughs> I have a poem in my head that is sort of like the response that I would get when I was doing phone banking or phone or text banking. You know, and 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 I was and and some people would be like, oh, okay, and other people would be like, so hostile. You know, and the language that they would—they'll you know, text. You know, people will text anything, and it was kind of like, whoa. So <laughs> I, I just—I—I uh, I started sort of making some notes about that, and I thought there's something. I'm going to write something about that, but I'm not there yet. I am taking a vacation from all of that for the time. For the time. Right. Where is so, your book um, available? Where is your book available? Um, um, every everywhere books are sold. Um, I, everywhere books I, are sold. Okay, but I really I've checked. I mean, I steer people to a, a company called bookshop.org because they give some of their profits to independent bookstores, which I'm a big supporter okay. of. But bookshop.org and they sell it for I think a little less than Amazon. Amazon, Walmart, Barnes and Noble, and your local independent bookstore and also my publisher, um Apprentice House. 
um, of Loyola, Maryland, you can order directly from them. But, yeah, it's almost like there. I think Apprentice House does a great job of distribution because you could – I mean, I was stunned. You could you find it on Target. So, yeah, and you can always order wow. it through your local independent bookstore. And it's a bargain because it's only twelve ninety nine for a hundred for a full-length poetry. <laughs> What's next for you creatively? What's next for you creatively? Um, work, we'll I'm, working on, I'm working on a new um, – collection. I did not read any of the stuff from that. Well, a new collection. It's not new poems. Um, And a lot of them are sort of nature poems with like a dark underside. And some of them are Ireland poems. And um, so uh, that's next for me to sit down and really put together. And after I'm also working on um, the the place that I have recently moved to was in its former life a not very good psychiatric hospital where um, a lot of not very good treatment was given to people. And it also was a place where some famous people came either to dry out from alcohol issues or in some cases um, just, you know, other kinds of psychiatric issues. And, um, and, and, Suffice it to say, without giving away too much about the theme of this book, I think there's some poems here, and um, and a very famous poet um, was treated here for many years. So I'm doing a lot of the historical research right now about that, and then I will be. I think I can get like a book out of it. I, I mean, a book wow. of poems. So I, I think it. You know, it's for me. This is like new territory. So that's a that's a project and. I don't know. What else? Um, you know, I, I do like to write fiction. I've got a long manuscript that I need to get to work on um, before I get to be 100 years old. So <laughs> that that comes after the the next full-length poetry collection that I mentioned first, so the nature poetry one. So that's well, we've got a few things. <laughs> yes, yes, you do. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for spending time with us. I'm sure the listeners can tell why you're one of my favorite poets. Your work is, as I said, sublime. Um, oh, thank you so much, Michael. This has been so much fun. I really, really appreciate it. Um, yes, I wish you nothing but the best. Thanks you again, saying? and the same the same to you. And uh, I will be listening to, to QP and seeing who else you have on soon. <laughs> Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> well, on that note, I'll say good night to everyone. Okay. And as I share every week, let poetry ring. Good night, everybody. Yes, definitely. Good night. You have just listened to the quintessential listening poetry online radio podcast with your host. Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. And make sure to catch our next episode.